and good morning everyone who's joining online and uh, welcome to you as well. If we've got any feedback issues with sound, we're working on those. We've got our guys over here who are EQing my voice. I was not born with a preacher's voice, so I've worked hard on it, but uh, I always give sound guys trouble. So, uh, but let us know how things sound. Let us know how things look. We're working hard for you as well. And we've got about 35 people in here today. We're not supposed to have 35. Maybe we'll just say it's 25, entre guillemets, 25 people here. That's a joke. Okay, forget it. Just out of curiosity, well, and it doesn't matter. Maybe you're, maybe you're not going to get the vaccine. I can't force you. Uh, but maybe you are going to get the vaccine. How many of you have actually had at least one dose of the vaccine. Can you put your hand in the air? Yeah, so a good lot of you. So my wife had her first dose on Friday, and I'm getting mine next Friday. So I'm, I'm happy to get the vaccine. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it won't be anything big. Maybe it won't hurt at all. But, uh, you know, I, I heard um, uh, the head of the CDC in the U.S., he happens to be an evangelical Christian. His name is Francis Collins. Uh, you know the little short guy who you see on television in the U.S., Anthony Fauci? Well, Francis Collins is Anthony Fauci's boss. And uh, he's an evangelical, Francis Collins. And he says, you know what? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you should get vaccinated. That's what he says, an evangelical. And the reason why he says it is because his pesky virus, it's very sneaky, it's very deceptive. You can have this thing and show no symptoms and pass it to somebody else who may well, you know, end up with the disease. And so Francis Collins, evangelical Christian, head of the CDC, he says, yes, you should get the vaccine if you're a Christian because that's loving your neighbor as yourself. I thought that was really interesting that he said that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, welcome today. And uh, I'll just mention, you know what? I'm just going to mention a couple of things. Uh, Wednesday night, we're having a really good time uh, with this video Bible study. I think this past Wednesday was the most fun we've had and the most interesting discussion. And this coming Wednesday, just the, the way that it's working out, uh, the, the topic is actually going to be the mark of the beast that we're going to do. And what we're looking at is the early church, um, but the early church in historical context, okay? And uh, so some of the churches mentioned the opening chapters of the book of Revelation we're covering. What was it like for these people uh, in the early church? Man, my voice is ringing, ringing, ringing. You can turn the mains down if that helps at all. Uh, and so it just so happens that one of the churches that we're looking at, and one of the subjects is going to be the mark of the beast. And the subject came up in the video discussion from a young person who said, uh, the people in my school are saying the vaccine is the mark of the beast. Have you heard this? Have you heard this? Okay, I have heard this, and I'm going to deal with this on Wednesday night, okay, in the Bible study. I've already dealt with this before, but it seems to just keep cropping up its head, all right? So you, if you think it is, you might get a different view on Wednesday night of this passage, all right? So it's a Zoom call. It's one hour. Uh, if you need the link, I've sent it out to everybody in this room. I think I know every single person here by name, so I've sent it to everybody uh, but if you need it, contact me, and it would be great to have you. And tomorrow night, we're also going to do our live Q&A. And tomorrow night's going to jive with this message today. And the question tomorrow night is going to be, does God get angry? Does God get angry? We'll deal with that uh, tomorrow night. And next week is Mother's Day. 
which a lot of people, especially if they're male, uh, forget about. So you just heard it. Today's Mother's Day. You're watching online. Or next week is Mother's Day. I'm sorry. So go get your flowers. Do whatever you have to do to honor uh, your moms or the, you know, your, your Honor your moms, okay? <laughs> but uh, next week, we're going to meet here. We didn't plan on that, but we're going to do Mother's Day here. I'm going to have a message for you about how Jesus treated his mother. I think you'll find it very uh, fascinating, the way that he treated his mother. Uh, but we're also going to have something for the kids, a little break for moms and, I guess, dads. And we're going to screen in number 12, which is just down the hall, like about 30 feet uh, one of the movies that they're playing here, uh, it's Tom and Jerry, all right? So a little bit of fun for the kids, probably ages 4 to 10 uh, would be appropriate for that. Uh, so we'll keep it in that. We have, a, I think it's a 20-person cap, and you do need to register. We are paying for it. We have the copyright to play it this way. And so we're going to give the parents a little break. Kids can go and watch Tom and Jerry. You say, oh, Tom and Jerry, it's, is that a Christian movie? It doesn't sound like a Christian movie. I can't go see it. Okay, go to uh, pluggedin.com, and Plugged In will give you a review of the whole movie. Trust me, your kids are watching a lot of things that you don't think that they're watching. And Tom and Jerry's not going to hurt them. Uh, so, you know, it's just a little bit of fun for them and give you, as parents, a break. You do have to register for next week as usual. Go to our website and uh, register yourselves and your kids. Uh, they have to be registered separately, okay? Invite friends. you got kids who have uh, friends in school and they want to come on Mother's Day. Superb. That's a, that's a great thing to invite them to, all right? And uh, also for parents, remember the uh, website, uh, especially for uh, like up to preteens, it works. Little kids and up to preteens, makingthebiblecomealive.com. Great content uh, from our friends over at the District of Quebec, okay? Um, and uh, for those of you who want to give in person, uh, Zoe is going to be right here at the table at the end of the service. She's got the machine. It is working today. Praise the Lord, okay? So it is working today, so far, and so far everything seems to be working today. They've even got my voice sounding better, okay? So she'll be here at the end, and also uh, you can give online as usual through our website. So we're in part four of our series, Losing My Religion. This is a look through, a brief look through the book of Hebrews in the Bible's New Testament, all right? So for those of you who are uh, you know, tracking in and tracking out of this. You maybe have been for a couple of them, but not all of them. Uh, the book of Hebrews, really interesting um, letter. Uh, but as all the literature, pretty well all the literature in the New Testament, it has an occasion. And this is what you have to understand when you read anything, uh, it, especially in the New Testament. It, this is occasional literature, we call it. And the trick is you have to figure out what is the occasion that, that precipitated this letter. Because it's not just, it's not the, the author is not saying, well, I'm just going to write something generic that people in the 21st century are going to read as the inspired word of God. You know, and I'll just sort of close my eyes and go like this and see what happens, you know. That's not at all what the author of the book of Hebrews had in his mind when he's writing. He's writing to a group of people on an occasion. There's an occasion that has precipitated this letter. And we have to figure that out if we're going to understand what we're reading. 
Otherwise, we're going to say, you know, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And we're going to come up with bizarre interpretations of these Bible passages because we don't know the occasion and we don't take the time to try and figure out, ah, wait a second, before I, you know, take revelation and look at, you know, vaccine technology as a mark of the beast. Hold on a second. What was the occasion that this thing was written in? What precipitated it? What precipitated it with the Hebrews and with this group of people who we don't even know the name of the author. We assume it could be Paul, could be Barnabas, could be one of the major figures in the New Testament or in the book of Acts. Could be, but we're not sure. It could be Peter, but he doesn't, he doesn't identify himself. That's one thing, but when we read through the letter and when we understand what was going on in the broader context of the New Testament, it becomes a lot clearer. And this is a group of Hebrew believers. It's a group of Jews. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a small church. Maybe it's a large community. We're not sure the size of it. But these people are being written to. They're being challenged. They're being warned repeatedly. They're being encouraged. They're being reminded of things from their ancient past. And the whole thing of it is, keep on keeping on believing and following Jesus. This is the whole message of the book, and it is specific to this group of Hebrews. Why? Because there would be unique pressures that these people would face in claiming Jesus as their Lord and their Messiah. Unique pressures, and those pressures are still around today. So if you read the Gospels, do you see the, the, the Hebrew community, the Jewish community at large, immediately you know, following Jesus? No. In fact, you see a significant percentage of the Jewish community who has issues with Jesus, especially the ultra-religious. The more religious they are, the more problems they have with Jesus. So the scribes, the people who copied the the, what we call the Old Testament, they had big issues with Jesus. Uh, the teachers of the law, these are the people who were the experts in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They, they had big issues with Jesus. The Pharisees, which were the, the super holy uh, people who had all these rules that they said that they followed and who even added rules to rules. They had big, big clashes with Jesus and Jesus had his strongest condemnation for these people strange the more religious they got the more issues that they had with Jesus Jesus had a larger following with uh, low life see you know with the people who the ultra religious didn't want to be with these are the people who Jesus wanted to be with he wanted to be with the tax collector he even he even brings a tax collector onto his team a traitor he brings onto his team. A betrayer, Judas, he brings onto his team. Uneducated fishermen, he brings onto his team. He hangs around with people who are, whoa, uh, the, the spheres and the, the margins of that culture. He, he has discussions with, with, a profound discussion with a Samaritan woman alone. So Jesus breaks all these kinds of religious taboos and there is a broad section of Judaism that has an issue with that. It ultimately, you could say, gets Jesus executed. 
this, this venom that was produced against him by this ultra-religious crowd. And their issue with Jesus is that he is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is deceiving you. He cannot claim to be God. No man can do that. He's making these weird statements about the temple. Nobody can say he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. That's bizarre. The miracles that he's doing, these are done by some sort of other power, but probably the power of the devil. We have a character in the scripture, a figure, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who is of that view. That Jesus is a deceiver. He's a liar. This movement must be stopped because the wrath of God is going to come upon us because of this man. So for religious reasons, Jesus was opposed. And so the followers of Jesus who were Hebrew would have trouble. We see that happen to, to, to Saul himself when he, when he converts and, and you know, is preaching the message that he opposed, what happens to him? He gets persecuted. He gets viciously persecuted, largely by the religious folks who say, uh-uh, this, this is not going to work. This movement, again, has to be stopped. So this Hebrew group of believers needed to be encouraged, needed to be warned, needed to be admonished, because they were going to face some heat. And we see at the beginning of the letter, he, the writer goes into great detail and, and argues very effectively to show that Jesus is greater than even an angel, that Jesus is in fact God. Chapter 2, he, he, he kind of uh, changes direction a little bit, sort of flips the coin over, and he talks about Jesus and how Jesus is not only God, but Jesus is also human. And Jesus knows suffering, and Jesus knows uh, grief, and Jesus uh, uh, calls us, um, we're of the same family, calls us brothers and sisters. And so we have this relationship with God through Jesus, because Jesus is not only fully God, but he's fully human. And then we looked into uh, chapter 3 uh, last week. I can't even remember what chapter 3, oh yeah, okay, uh, where we had this warning start, right? And with this warning against unbelief, don't stop believing, you could call it, after the old, you know, the old 80s song, and that's chapter 3, and he's going to continue this into chapter 4, speaking about the rest of God. And there's other things that he talks about there, but I'm going to focus on that for a few moments uh, while we're here together. So know the occasion of the book of Hebrews and it will unlock your understanding a bit better because it's a complicated book. Uh, so we see this idea that's put before us in chapter 4. Uh, there's a continuing warning, but there's also this promise of entering God's rest. God's rest. So we can ask the question as we're reading Hebrews 4, what is it that keeps people from entering God's rest? And what is God's rest? These are questions that come into our mind as we read the text. And as we see what the author does, he's going to jump back in time like four or five times to a passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 95. And we looked at this last week and he's going to jump back to it. And in that passage, you have this warning 
where God is, is speaking to the, the children of Israel who had gone through the, the, the split sea, the Red Sea, and were on their way to Canaan, the, the promised land, and yet they're stuck in the wilderness for a generation. For like 40 years, a journey that should take a few weeks, they end up trekking here and there for 40 years. And the generation that left Egypt is the generation that perished in the wilderness. You see who actually makes it into the promised land? Not even Moses makes it. Moses kind of sees it from a distance, but not even Moses makes it. He he, in a sense, forfeits getting into the promised land because of the way that he behaved in a certain situation. He, he kind of lost his temper and he paid the price for it. And a generation paid the price and was left there in the wilderness. And a new generation goes in under Joshua and Caleb and these young people head into Canaan. And you say, how is that possible? What did these people do that God was angry with them. This is what the passage says over and over again in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4. You see this repeated and you kind of wince as you read it. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And you see it repeated over and over again. You say, my goodness, what did they do that made God angry? We'll deal with the question, does God still get angry today? We'll deal with that tomorrow night. But it's hard to read these passages because you say, my goodness, uh, what kind of God are we talking about here? And what did these people do? Well, when you read what they did, and you, we talked about this a bit last week, but when you read what they did and you read God's perspective of it, then it starts to become uh -oh, a little bit clearer and a little bit, we start looking in the mirror when we read it. So you see a few things, and these are listed for us in the book of Hebrews itself, but you can jump back in time. You can go into the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and you can read how these folks behaved after they left Egypt and what went on in the wilderness. You see rebellion. You see disobedience. You see disbelief, which is not atheism in that case, and I'll explain that in a minute. But you see this over and over again from these people. God actually says 10 times that they did this to me. 10 times they disobeyed, they rebelled, they, they disbelieved. And, and God gets to a point where he says, that's it. You're not going into the promised land. It's a strong, strong warning from their history. So Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. See to it that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. That's how we finished our message last week. As long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, and here's that pesky psalm again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Again, going back to that generation in the desert. Who were they who heard and rebelled? The author asks, were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? 
You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Potentially like even up to a million people, some scholars say. It's a city of people, a small city of people who left Egypt. And yet these people rebelled, we're told. And with whom he was angry for 40 years. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want God mad at me for a generation. <laughs> but here, this is what it says. And we read it today and we wince at this. We say, Ugh, what kind of God is this? You know, Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering God's rest, His rest, still stands, let us be careful. Warning to the Hebrews, doot, 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 let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. In some translations, it even talks about being afraid to not fall short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. You say, what? How could they have the gospel preached to them in the wilderness, you know, way before Jesus was even born? Well, what were they told? They were told that God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and filled with mercy. And they had a whole sacrificial system that they had to follow. And they were saved by faith through grace, understanding that whole system that God had put in place. So it's, a, it's like a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus ultimately. But these people can't say, well, we never heard the good news preached to us. And even in the first century, even a greater understanding of that through Jesus. So we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. There's disbelief there. Now we who have believed enter that rest. So it seems faith is the key to entering this rest of God. Just as God has said, here's that pesky verse again, so I declared on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. So there seems to be this rest of God that can be entered through faith. What kept them? Well, disobedience, rebellion, unbelief. Just an example of this from Exodus chapter 32, and you can read this yourself, is when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments of God and the tablets. You know, Moses was the first tablet user. That's a joke, just a joke. He threw it down, but I'm not going to throw it down, okay? But why did he throw it down? Here's Moses up on the mountain getting all of this information from God, from God directly to deliver to the people. And what do the people do? When Moses is up there. Any of you know, shout it out at me. Any of you know online, write it down. What, what did they do? They partied. Yeah, how did they party? Well, singing's not bad. What? Yeah, they, 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 well, yeah, there's this problem with this calf, this golden calf. So what do they do? It's Aaron 
who says, well, you know, the people are getting upset. They're like, you know, uh, what's going on here? You know, our leader is up there. Maybe he doesn't know what he's doing anymore. Like maybe God doesn't know what God is doing anymore. Maybe we need another God. So you know what? And Aaron is in cahoots with this whole thing. Well, everybody take off your earrings and your jewelry and everything like that, and let's put it in the pot. Let's, let's cook it. You know? And what do they do? They fashion you know, the golden calf. Now, I could, I could say something right now about U.S. politics, but I'm going to hold my tongue on that. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. But uh, the convention, golden calf. Anyway, so um, I digress. I'm sorry. The image is in my head of the thing. So the golden calf. And Moses comes down, and the people are, in some translations, indulging in pagan revelry, to use old language. You can use your imagination to wonder what's going on there. Moses comes down, he takes the iPad, and he throws it on the ground, right? He breaks the two iPads. And why does he do that? Well, he's, he's justified in doing that. Look at what these people are doing. And he has a conversation with Aaron. And it goes something like this. Well, you know, we put the stuff in the fire and out came this calf. We don't know what happened. Like, what kind of insolence is that? What kind of... You, you've got to be so far off the mark to have... To even say that. But that's how far off the deep end these people had gone. And these are people who walked through the Red Sea with you know, water up on either side, and, and yet they were quick to abandon their trust in God. Quick to fashion another idol, another God. Quick to rebel against Moses. It would not be the first time that they rebelled against Moses. You have several rebellions that take place against Moses. He is God's man, and they rebel against him. When they rebel against him, it's like they're rebelling against God. And it happens over and over and over and over again. God says, ten times they did this to me. I chose these people to bear my name. And you know what they have done with this calf? You know what it's like to God? It's like cheating. It's like cheating on God. So maybe some of you in this room, you've had the experience where someone cheated on you. They committed adultery. They cheated on you. How'd that make you feel? Maybe you come from a situation, maybe one of your parents, there was adultery. How'd that make you feel? How do you think it makes God feel when people rebelled against him and made that calf? He, that would have been very, that would have broken the heart of God. And when I see that he's angry and I see how many times they rebelled, you know what? I say he's justified in his anger because it's the worst, most egregious thing that they could have done. And Moses has to petition God to, to get God's wrath to kind of turn the volume down and the amperage down on God's wrath. At one point, God says, I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to create a new generation through you, Moses. I'm done with these people. And, and Moses says, well, hold the phone. It's quite a conversation that he has with God about all of these people. And they would rebel against Moses. They would drive Moses to drink, in a sense. In a sense, they would. 
Right? Remember why Moses didn't get into the promised land? Because of a rock that, he, that he, he should have done it this way for the water to come out and he loses his temper and he does it another way and God says, that's it. You're not going in either. Because they drove him bananas as a leader. His father-in-law Jethro had to teach him how to handle this, this crowd of people when they would fight with one another. There's Moses standing there trying to be the judge of all these fights with all of these people. And, and Jethro, his, his father-in-law, has to say, Moses, the way you're doing this is not right. The way you're leading, it's all messed up. Problem after problem, rebellion after rebellion, issue after issue, and a whole generation perished. Now, it's not atheism their unbelief is not atheism don't read the text that way that's not the occasion right their unbelief was we'll pick another god who will meet our needs we'll pick another one whichever one works is the one that we'll worship for now and we'll put that one away when we need something else and this is the most egregious thing for god this is the thing that makes god angry he is not one of many he's the only one He's the only one. There is no God besides him. And as soon as you place something else next to him and you say, well, today it'll be this one and tomorrow it will be God and then we'll flip flop. It enrages God because he is the one and only true God. This is what he declares. And he wants people to be faithful to him and trust him regardless of whether they're in the desert we're crossing through the sea. So it's not atheism, this unbelief. It's to switch to another deity. What's another reason? Uh, and for this, we look to Jesus as he talks about this religion. And that's the title of our series, Losing My Religion. If you define religion as a bunch of things that you have to do to get to God, those things are insufficient. This is what's declared to these Hebrews, those things are insufficient for you. That is not going to do the trick. That's not going to change you. That's not going to transform you. Doing all of those things, those are all good things. It's fine that you do those things, but those things are not enough. Those do not save. They are not, uh, to use a fancy term, but they're not salvific. It's your faith in what God has done that saves. It's not you doing all of these things, because if you think that doing all of these things is what saves you, then what's going to happen to you is you're going to become a legalist. And a legalist is exactly what, what Jesus was dealing with in the first century. Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law. These people knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, especially the first five books of the Bible, the, Tanakh, uh, the Torah. They knew it backwards and forwards, and they added to it. They added all of this stuff. You have 600-some-odd rules to follow, and then they added all these other things to it, especially the Pharisees. They had rules about rules about rules about rules, and they showed off the fact that they kept the rules. They boasted about the fact that they kept the rules. So for them, you keep the rules and, and, and you satisfy God. And Jesus had real issues with this. This is what keeps a person from entering God's rest. Uh, you see in uh, Matthew chapter 11, uh, the subject of rest is addressed uh, by Jesus. 
And only in uh, Matthew's gospel does he speak these exact words uh, that we have here. And he says this to them, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What's he talking about there? Well, back in that time, uh, these folks would know exactly what he's talking about uh, because a yoke, um, a yoke is like a harness. Uh, some of you who have grow, grown up on a farm, maybe you've seen two animals harnessed together and they're plowing land. Any of you seen that before? I've been to uh, I've been to a few African nations once in my life, and and one time I saw it. I was in the back of a truck driving on a road, and I saw these two animals harnessed together with this yoke, and uh, and I said, "Oh wow, a yoke!" And you know, I'm taking pictures in my my North American camera. You know, the white guy taking pictures of the yoke, and so I took pictures of this. And but the problem with the yoke there, the two animals were unevenly yoked, and the yoke broke. It smashed to pieces because one animal was bigger than the other one was going one way one was going the other way and it smashed i said oh man this will preach this is a great illustration that i got on my short-term missions trip you know it's just perfect so this jesus is in that time where this is they would have understood you're yoked you got two animals and you're yoked with them and jesus says ah you take my yoke upon you for my yoke it's an easy yoke it's not like the Pharisees' yoke with all these rules that you're burdened with and all this stuff that you have to do and rules upon rules upon rules. It's not the Pharisees' yoke. It's my yoke. You take my yoke upon you and you learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. Not like them. <laughs> it's kind of what he's saying, tongue in cheek. For my yoke is easy and my burden is not, my burden is light watch out watch out and here in in matthew 23 uh you can read the whole chapter for yourself this is the quintessential condemnation of legalism given by jesus it is the strongest language that he uses um i'll just read a few verses here and he says the teachers of the law and the pharisees they sit in moses's seat that was a place that used to be in the synagogues. We've learned that on our, our Wednesday night series, actually. They sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. Don't do what these people do. Why? For they do not practice what they preach. And they, uh, I can't even read this. Oh, there we go. <laughs> My eyes are getting hard with this red letter Bible. They tie up heavy loads. And put them on men's shoulders. That's a yoke. And they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. All these rules, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. A phylactery was actually a, uh, they would wear this box on their head. And they would tie a, a, a piece of leather around their arms seven times. We call that a tefillin. 
uh, today, and Jews still use this. And inside the box, there would be a little Hebrew Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so he says they're phylacteries. Uh, they, 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 they love it when people see that. It's done for men to see their phylacteries are wide and the tassels on their garments are so long. They're such religious people. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. They love to have people call them rabbi and Jesus turns around and condemns these people. He calls them hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Do not be like them. People who live that way do not enter the rest of God. So two causes of what I'll say spiritual exhaustion. And you can inspect your own lives and apply it to your life. Who or what is the center of your worship? Where are you spending the most, the most, the bulk of your time, the bulk of your ability, the bulk of your money, that is the center of your worship. It can be argued that there are really no true, true atheists today because everybody has some sort of deity uh, or center of worship. They may not like the word theist, they might not like the word deity, but who are you living for? Is it a relationship? Is it materialism? Is it money? Is it religion? Is it Who are you living for? What are you living for? What is the narrative in your head that's driving the decisions that you are making in life? That is your God. That is the center of your worship. Who is that? What is that? If it's not God, then it's a problem. Then you've got a disbelief problem. Then you've got a trust problem problem with God. It doesn't mean that you understand everything. It doesn't mean that you can explain everything. It doesn't mean that you can figure out the reason why you've been through such and such a circumstance. It doesn't mean that. It means you say, God, I trust you in spite. God, I entrust you in spite. I'm in the wilderness now. I've crossed through the sea, but now I'm in the wilderness, but I'm not making a calf. I will not make a calf. I will continue to trust you. I will continue to worship you. I'm not going to displace you with a calf. I'm not going to rebel against you. I'm not going to make the mistake that they made so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I'm not going to do that. Who or what is the center of your worship? And is your faith founded on legalism? Some of you come out of legalistic churches where you couldn't, you know, men can't, women can't wear pants or makeup or, you know, and you've got to do this and do this in order to be accepted in the church. And if you don't do this, you're not saved. If you don't do that, if you do this, you're not, if you do all these bunch of do's and don'ts that you grew up with, that's legalism. If your faith is founded on legalism, recipe for spiritual exhaustion. Come to me, Jesus said, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take your legalism and your religion and lose it. Come to me, Jesus says. And this is a volitional thing. This is a willful thing uh, that people have to do. Uh, again, from Matthew chapter 11, and guys, you can come up to the stage. Uh, Simon, if you, yeah, you guys can come up to the stage, I'll... Oh, improvise there. So, 
Uh, you guys can come up to the stage and you can start to play a little bit and uh, we're going to wrap up the service. But look what Jesus says. Again, come to me. That would, it would suggest you have to make a decision. It would suggest that you have to, uh, by your own volition, approach him. He says, come to me. Not to Pharisees, not to rules, not to the teachers of the law, not to the systems that you understood and have been taught by these people, but you come to me. You make a decision to come, and he says, you're weary, you're burdened, you're spiritually exhausted, you come to me. You've tried the calf, the calf didn't work. And you face the consequences of your calf. You've tried all the do's and the don'ts, and you're spiritually exhausted. Take my yoke upon you. I've got something new for you. I've got something that's not going to burden you. It's an easy yoke. It, it implies a close relationship that you're, you're walking through life harnessed to Jesus, walking through life with him, plowing the ground, as it were, with Jesus. Take my yoke upon you. It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to be a follower of Jesus, to be a student, to be a learner, to be in a deep relationship with Jesus. And what will you find? Rest. Author of Hebrews says, we who believe enter that rest. I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. So I just wonder, where's your faith at today? Where's it at? I mean, you're running through, not even running, I mean, snail's pace through a, a pandemic. And what does that do to a person's faith? Uh, do we start making caps, golden caps? Do we try and figure out a system of do's and don'ts? This is what's going to work because it didn't work before, so try and figure out something. Or will we just simply take the hand of the Lord and say, Lord, I'm just walking with you. I'm just harnessed to you. I've, I've got your yoke, and I'm just walking with you through life. Let's, let's keep plowing. Let's keep plowing. So, Father, I pray today you would help us and you would impress upon us, Lord, uh, just your peace and your rest. There are people in this room and people who are watching who have experienced all kinds of things, God, highs and deep lows over, over this last season. And even now, even this week, highs and deep lows perhaps for people in this room. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, through all of that stuff, we would just continue to hold your hand. We would just continue to keep that yoke on. Uh, Lord, we would just continue to put one foot in front of the other and take those steps as you lead us. But Lord, we, we want to resist the temptation to look elsewhere. We want to resist the temptation for a quick fix and uh, uh, a solution that's outside of your will and your boundaries for our lives. Lord, I pray for young people who face that, that type of temptation, spending all day probably online 
all day looking at screens and content, 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 and so many choices and so many different voices offering so many different opinions and so many different options. Lord, may we just hold on to you through all of it. Uh, we pray, God, that your peace and your presence would just envelop our souls once again. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen.